0: Two weeks ago, I preached a sermon on the spirituality of spring, creativity as spiritual practice. And in that sermon, I quoted a groundbreaking modern dancer and choreographer, Martha Graham, who said that there is a vitality, a life force, a quickening that is translated through each one of us into action. And because there is only one of you in all time, This expression is unique. If you block it, it will never exist through any other medium and be lost. The world will not have it. And it's not your business to determine how good it is, nor how valuable it is, nor how it compares to other expressions. It's your business to keep it yours, clearly and directly, to keep the channel open. This morning, I'd like to pick up on that thread of keeping the channel open of your unique vitality, um, creativity, and imagination that is expressed in, with, and through each one of us. And part of why I scheduled this sermon topic for this morning, part of why you heard a poem from Laura this morning, uh, is that April is National Poetry Month. And creativity is found, of course, in many different forms, from the the creativity of the social and emotional intelligence of how we interact with one another, to the inventiveness of athletic prowess in sports, to all forms of artistic expression. But the genre of poetry is particularly ripe for exploring human beings as channels of creativity because poetry often results in a playfulness of forms expanding the boundaries of language and gesturing toward new ways of experiencing both ourselves and the world. Indeed, our English word poem derives from the Greek word poesis, which is a verb. So poem in Greek is a a verb and it means to make in the sense of something new being brought into the world. And the title of this morning's sermon comes from a poem by the 19th century German Romantic poet Johann Holderlin. A century later, the philosopher Martin Heidegger published an essay on Holderlin's poem titled Poetically Man Dwells. And although there's a lot to be said about Holderlin and Heidegger, it's harder to make that interesting. So I want to skip ahead to the 21st century to Jim Edwards, the undergraduate professor who introduced me to Holderlin, to Heidegger, and to so many other creative seekers of wisdom throughout the ages. You heard Dr. Edwards' excer- excerpt of him that Turner read moments earlier. Now many lectures, and I'll be honest, sermons for that matter are forgettable. And they may well be meaningful and useful at the time, but occasionally a lecture or a sermon, for whatever combination of reasons, is both meaningful and memorable. That is, some idea or word or phrase, it just sticks with you even years later. For me, Dr. Edwards' classes had a much higher percentage than most of the classes that I've taken as far as having moments that were both meaningful at the time and memorable later. And that's not an opinion unique to me. I attended Furman University in Greenville, South Carolina. It's a liberal arts college that places a high value not only on publication but on teaching. And despite a large number of highly dedicated and talented professors, Dr. Edwards in 2011 became the only faculty member in Furman's, you know, many I think it was founded in 1826, uh, the only faculty member in its history to receive the university's meritorious teaching award twice. And one of the many phrases that stuck with me from Dr. Edwards even now, almost two decades later, is his attempt to name what he had learned in his many decades of teaching and studying philosophy about what it should mean for us to be religious as citizens of the 21st century, in light of all that we know about the universe from Copernicus and Darwin and Freud and Einstein and Hubble and so many others. In his book, The Plain Sense of Things, The Fate of Religion in an Age of Normal Nihilism, Edwards writes, alluding to Holderlin and Heidegger, what should it mean for us, not for people for all time or in the past or in the future, but what should it mean for us to be religious? I have answered it thus, to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal. And I'd like for us to, um, I'd like to offer that phrase to you, to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal, that together this morning we might explore, if only briefly, Edwards does it in about 300 pages, um, how it might point us toward meaning and shape for our lives. And perhaps one reason that Edwards' suggestion has stuck with me of what it should mean for us to be religious in the 21st century is that Dr. Edwards was uh, also the most well-known, articulate, and matter-of-fact atheist at my college. And all these day, and although these days there seem to be a new headline every day about the, the rise of the nuns, not the N-U-N-S, though we'll see what happens under Pope Francis, but the, the N-O-N-E-S, who identify as spiritual but not religious. And as a side note, I think the invitation of Unitarian Universalism is to invite those spiritual but not religious to see you, that there might be a way with integrity of being spiritual and religious. But back in the 1990s in South Carolina, let's just say outspoken atheists were rare. Uh, I had a few good friends in high school that were self-professed agnostics, but Dr. Edwards was, if not the first atheist that I knew, then certainly the first atheist I met who made atheism seem like a serious, well-considered worldview that a healthy, thoughtful, compassionate adult could choose. And I remember him challenging us in class by saying that Atheism, his skepticism, and his lack of traditional religious belief had very little to do with the way he lived his life. You heard some of that in what Turner read. And the flip side of that point, at least for most people in the Western world in the 21st century, is that most people's religious belief also doesn't have that much to do with the way they actually live their life. That's the dirty little secret of religion. Most people's socioeconomic status affects the car they drive, the size of house they live in, how they spend their time, what entries they put on their checkbook or in their credit card, much more than their religious beliefs. If the opposite were the case, if people's religious beliefs were the primary determinative factor in their lives, then presumably we would see, among many examples, a much smaller wealth gap in our allegedly highly Christian country, and much more aid based on need instead of perceived merit, which is very different from actual merit, but that's a separate sermon. <laughs> to name only one of many examples, you know, there's the whole um, uh, phenomenon of people who were born on third base and think they hit a home run, but that's a... Um, In life, anyway, separate sermon. To name only one of many examples, the second chapter of the book of Acts gives us this vision of the early church. All who believed were together, and they had all things in common. They would sell their possessions and goods and distribute the proceeds to all as any had need. Sounds like some inspiration for the Communist Manifesto, but uh, again, probably a separate sermon. Edwards challenged me to see much more clearly than I had previously how easy it was for a growing number of people to be what is sometimes called good without God, as well as to see how many supposedly religious people seem to actually idolatrous, idolatrously worship money and status more than the God they claimed was the most important thing in their life. For us here at UUCF, with our AHA discussion group, which stands for Atheist humanist agnostic, perhaps I should add that Edwards would likely qualify that despite his atheism, he was not a humanist per se. If anything, Edwards is a thoroughgoing pragmatist who believes in emphasizing what works, and, as a commi- and is also a committed historicist, meaning that our lives and our worldviews are deeply influenced by the contingencies of the historical context into which we're born. Edwards has written, for example, that my failure to believe in some large things, such as God with a capital G, doesn't necessarily mean that I do believe in other large things, such as humanity with a capital H, or science with a capital S, or reason with a capital R, in the sense of those things transcending historical context. He basically doesn't think anything transcends historical context. If I can be said to believe in anything at all, it's in a series of fairly small things. I believe in keeping Kirtland's warblers alive, in keeping most of one's promises, in cultivating a decent regard for the truth, in offering kindnesses to strangers, including the strangers that we find within ourselves, in making better for the sick and poor, and in preserving a healthy vulgarity, and so forth. Now, given this background, my interest was piqued when I would hear Edwards, the staunch atheist and committed pragmatist, say what would it mean for us to be religious? And I was equally intrigued by his answer, to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal. As an atheist, Edwards' choice to use that word religious is intentional, and I suspect it's related, again, to his historicism. For better or worse, we live in a time in which our culture has a strong and complex religious history from which to draw. And as an inheritor of that history, Edwards writes, we need and luckily still have available to us practices that can contain, concentrate, and transmit sacramental energies. Energies for limitation in the face of hubris and for transformation in the face of complacency that used to be bound up in the stories of the gods. And that word practice is important here, too, because ultimately what we do is almost almost always more important than what we say we believe. As the social psychologists tell us, behavior is believable. So what are these practices that are still available to us with which we can be religious without also being dishonest? So yes, some of those practices do look like poetry and other forms of art. But as important as it is to create time and space to keep that channel open for that unique vitality, creativity, and imagination that is expressed in, with, and through us, it's important to name that to try to be spectacularly creative all the time sounds exhausting. So along these lines, the novelist um, Norman Maclean, who wrote A River Runs Through It, Young Men in Fire, a number of other things, used to tell this story about the physicist A.A. A. Mich- Michelson. Michelson. When I was a young teacher and still thought of myself as a billiards player, I had the pleasure of watching Albert Abraham Michelson play billiards nearly every noon. He was by then one of our na- national idols, having been the first American to win the Nobel Prize in science for the measurement of the speed of light, among other things. To me, he took on added luster because he was also the best amateur billiards player I had ever seen. One noon, while he was still shaking his head at himself for missing an easy shot after he had had a run of 35 or 36, I said to him, You're a fine billiards player, Mr. Mitchelson. He shook his head at himself. No, no. "'I'm getting old. I can still make the long three-cushion shots, "'but I'm losing my touch on the short ones.' He chalked up, but instead of taking the next shot, he finished what he had to say. "'Billiards, though, is a good game, "'but billiards is not as good a game as chess.' Still chalking his cue, he said, "'Chess, though, is not as good a game as painting.' And he made it final by saying, "'But painting is not as good a game as physics.' Then he hung up his cue and went home to spend the afternoon painting under the large tree on his front lawn. For me, the equivalent might be to say that ultimate frisbee is a good game. (laughs) But frisbee is not as good a game as watching and discussing excellent films. And film criticism is not as good a game as preaching sermons and teaching classes and writing books. But then perhaps I would go home and watch a film. So I invite you to consider, what would the equivalent practices be for you that allow you to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal? What are your practices of authenticity? The practices that make you feel grateful, more alive, more of yourself, more connected to other people and the world around you. What people, places, or things do you need more of? Or what people, places, and things do you need more? less of in your life to make space for these poetic practices in your life. Edwards, for himself, points to Thoreau's Walden as an example of how we can learn to see even the simplest parts of our lives as an invitation to dwell poetically. Thoreau writes, I got up early and bathed in the pond. That was a religious exercise. Those of us fortunate enough to have regular access to a shower with a cascade of hot water whenever we want it, that shower is an invitation not to one more thing to do before we get out the door in the morning. That hot shower is an invitation to gratitude, to savoring, to refreshment, to renewal. It's an invitation to dwell poetically on this earth. Some of you may have seen Michael Pollan is on a tour right now of his new book, Cooking. And he's saying that we need to reclaim cooking for those who would say that it has to be cheap and easy and always fattening and probably carcinogenic. That he's, he's, he's written a new book about that, about reclaiming cooking. And you could say, you could read that book, I think, through the lens of cooking as a religious experience. It's an invitation to experience a depth dimension in bathing and walking the dog and cooking and any seemingly mundane activity, to see them potentially as religious experiences that connect us to what we Unitarian Universalists call the interdependent web of all existence. And how we treat all those little parts of our lives, it really matters, because for the most part, those little parts are what add up to our life. As Annie Dillard has said, how we spend our days is how we spend our lives. So as we sit with this invitation to dwell more poetically on this earth and to more intentionally keep the channel open of the unique vitality, creativity, and imagination that is expressed in, with, and through each one of us, it is significant to note that Edwards, again the self-professed atheist, goes so far as to use the word grace to decide what it has felt like to him to dwell more poetically on this earth. in considering where creativity comes from, where he gets the inspiration to teach and to write books and to do, to bird and the other things that he does, he writes, I can't survey the contents of my imagination as I can the contents of a sock drawer. What appears in my imagination appears spontaneously, as unpredictably as a river flood tide in spring. Now, I can ask for water, but I can't always make it rain. I can work and work on my lines, but I can't add a cubit to the stature of even a single sentence. That, if it comes, is grace. And I think here he means grace in a certain sense of givenness. He's married to the uh, one of the major German professors at the, uh, the congregation. For any of you that know German, the word Uh, Es gift, so instead of, it has the sense of it gives to us, that things, instead of it's there, this is, it has a sense of it gives itself to us, we perceive it. Things that come free and gratis, like a gift that we're invited to experience and accept with gratitude, to experience the day, to receive the day in gratitude. To that end, and in the spirit of National Poetry Month, I invite you to hear a poem from John O'Donohue titled Blessing in the Chaos, from his book To Bless the Space Between Us. As you listen to this poem, I invite you to reflect on what it feels like inside you when you open yourself to imagination and creativity. O'Donohue writes, To all that is chaotic in you, let there come silence. Let there be a calming of the clamoring, a stilling of the voices that have laid their claim on you, that have made their home in you, that go with you even to the holy places, but will not let you rest, will not let you hear your life with wholeness or feel the grace that fashions you. Let what distracts you cease. Let what divides you cease. Let there be an end, to, an end to what diminishes and demeans, and let depart all that keeps you in its cage. Let there be an opening, an opening into the quiet that lies beneath the chaos, where you find the peace you didn't think was possible, and see what shimmers even within the storm. Those are good words, but for this morning, I want to give the last words to Dr. Edwards. First, I want to invite you to hear the conclusion that Edwards chose for the lecture he was invited to give in 1984 on the topic of what really matters. He chose in that case to give his last words to Thoreau, again from Walden. And to me, these words particularly speak to the mortality part, the sense in which each of us has a limited time to dwell poetically on this earth. Thoreau writes, Be it life or death, we crave only reality. And I think he means we crave only things as they really actually are. That's what we really want. And if we're really dying, let us hear that rattle in our throats and feel cold in the extremities. But if we are alive, and as long as we are alive, let us go about our business. In a decade after that speech on what really matters, Edwards wrote the final sentences to his book, The Plain Sense of Things, The Fate of Religion in an Age of Normal Nihilism. These concluding words are in many ways a contemporary updating of Thoreau's musings from a century and a half earlier. There, are Edwards' attempt to suggest how he, and perhaps we as well, can find meaning in the middle of our messy and complex lives. What should it mean for us? Not for our ancestors, nor for our successors. What should it mean for us to be religious? I've answered it thus, to dwell poetically on the earth as a mortal. That the question and its proper answer might at some time be unintelligible or trivial, It's not the point, so far as I can see. This is our life. This is our life. Should we not live it as simply, as sincerely, and as joyfully as we can?